This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ghost guns no longer hiding in the shadows. They're becoming more popular than ever for criminals looking to avoid detection. They have no serial numbers and can be easily assembled at home from parts ordered online. We'll go in-depth into how they're becoming a big problem right here in California. The big international climate change conference has wrapped up in Scotland Was anything substantial actually accomplished? And did devil worshiping lead to the Astro World disaster at the Travis Scott concert? We'll get into all the rumors and misinformation surrounding the crowd surge. California's economy trying to recover from the pandemic hasn't been easy. We'll talk with former White House Press Secretary Dee Dee Myers, who now runs the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development, about what's being done to get things moving again. Steve Bannon surrenders after getting hit with the contempt charges for defying a subpoena to appear before the January 6th commission. Uh, He came out of court today promising a fight, so does he have a chance? Maybe. And things are shaping up for the Republicans to maybe take back control of Congress in the midterms. If that happens, what do they plan to do? But let's start with ghost guns. Chris Catron is the Redlands police chief and first vice president of the California Police Chiefs Association. Chief, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. So what exactly is a ghost gun? We kind of touched on it in the intro. And why is it such a, a sort of scary development? Well, ghost guns are unserialized firearms that are typically bought online uh, that we're seeing proliferate uh, our streets and communities and uh, are involved in a whole variety of crimes and are being found at a, a very high rate. Um, you know, it's something that's uh, relatively new on the scene. Uh, with the internet came the ability for people just to order these online, much like we do many things in our lives. And uh, it's really posing a problem for law enforcement. How fast could I source one if I wanted to? And then if I'm relatively handy, how long to put it together? Well, uh, you can source one virtually instantly online. So if you go online and, you know, go to your search, any browser, put in ghost guns, uh, you'll get, you know, I just did it a few minutes ago and there's 25.2 million results. Um, And so you'll be able to get one in your hands in a matter of days. Uh, there are virtually no, uh, you know, no impediments to getting one. So if you click a button that says that you're legally allowed to own one and that you're over 21, um, there uh, many of these uh, online providers do nothing to check to make sure that that is true. And uh, you order one online and it'll arrive just like any other package that you order online. Um, they are allegedly 80% or less finished, which is how they kind of get through that federal loophole. And then there are a whole variety of online resources to determine how to uh, complete that gun so that it's a completely operational, unserialized, untraceable firearm. You said in passing there that you're supposed to click on the yes, I'm 21 and over, but is there evidence that a lot of people uh, who are ordering these ghost guns are a lot younger than 21? Yes, uh, definitely. So uh, many people can get on there. So people who are prohibited from owning firearms, people who are juveniles, um, you're literally just clicking a, a button on there that says I'm over 21 
and legally allowed, or, you know, depending on the state too. So not every state's going to require that you're 21, but for whatever state you're buying it in, it's gonna have the requirements of that state. And you just click to, you know, indicate that that is, uh, you know, that you meet those requirements and then you can order that gun online. Um, and then you, you know, if you search online, you know, you search for YouTube videos, um, a very popular YouTube video uh, that comes up readily is, how to get a legal ghost gun online at any age, exclamation mark, with over 400,000 views in less than a year. So, I mean, you know, you, you look at things like that and uh, it, it's very readily apparent why these things are getting into the hands of people who are otherwise prohibited, um, like felons, gang members, and juveniles. All right. So what do we do about these? There are some rules that could be passed, and, and some of the, the, the president's advisors want to get these through. Like, okay, when you go and pick up the parts, you have to go to a licensed gun shop or something like that. But then I'm wondering if there is enough inventory out there on back channels for people who really want to get their hands on one to last us like years anyways. Yes, unfortunately, um, just like with most firearms issues, you know, we have an inventory of firearms in the United States that's uh, quite significant. So, you know, you, you see these estimates that estimate that, you know, there are enough firearms in the United States for every man, woman and child to have three apiece. Um, that's a significant number. And that doesn't account for all the ghost guns that have been manufactured and produced in the, the years since those estimates. So, um, yeah, and then the parts that exist now that are just sitting in inventory and in transit, there are a lot out there, no doubt. But at the same rate, uh, police departments like ours, I mean, we're a relatively small department in Southern California. Um, we're taking more guns off the street right now than we ever have um, at an exponential rate. So uh, police officers are, are also encountering these and removing a lot from the streets. And most of those firearms are then destroyed later on. So, you know, there, there are definitely ways to counterbalance this. But having laws put into place that just put them into the normal system so that, you know, they have to have a serial number. They have to go through a federal firearms license dealer um, just so that we know about them and the normal controls to try to keep them out of the hands of juveniles felons, gang members, things of that sort, I, I think would go a long way in helping stem some of the tide. Chris Catron there, Redlands Police Chief and First Vice President, California Police Chiefs Association. Thanks. The big international climate change conference has finished in uh, Scotland. And the question that's on the table is uh, if there are agreements and some disagreements, what was actually accomplished? With us is Amy Jaffe, Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at Tufts University. Thanks for being with us. So I, I suppose it, it, it was going to be the likely outcome that some people walked away from that conference, I guess, happy, but a lot of people are not happy. What, in your view, briefly, of the pluses and minuses? What are the takeaways? Well, I think the big takeaway is you had some early agreements of large groups of countries to do things that are quite substantive. So one is, you know, methane is a more potent um, warmer of the climate than even CO2, which we're all used to talking about. So we did get a, a substantial agreement uh, to limit methane pollution. And of course, the United States was already moving in that direction with new rules that the Biden administration announced uh, in earlier in November uh, that are going to be worked out to try to make the oil industry here in the United States more efficient. Um, we, you know, we don't want to be shooting natural gas 
uh, into the sky when we could either be using it or, or just simply not producing it if we don't have a market for it. Um, and so uh, that, that was a big takeaway, um, uh, could make a ma major contribution. When people calculated that, it sounds small. Uh, they say that, you know, 0.2 degree less warming just from that uh, uh, agreement alone. Um, but that, you know, 0.2 degrees means a lot uh, in the global system. Okay, so, so those are the those are the the good big things that happen. But what about some of the hopes that didn't end up happening? Well, you know, so there are a lot of pledges about what people will, countries will and won't do for 2050. Um, but I think there was a hope that we could get much more ambition for what countries would commit to in terms of ending coal use and other uh, really substantial actions that would get us to a lower uh, global emissions by 2030. And there we kind of fell short. So the next step will be uh, when, when the climate negotiators meet again in Egypt and then, and then after that in, uh, in the United Arab Emirates, you know, can we keep the momentum of some of the announcements that came on methane and ending coal already uh, and make them even more ambitious in the next year or two to get to the point where when we get to 2030, we're talking about emissions going down. You know, we still have emissions going up globally and we need to reverse that. Uh, so the question is, can we build enough momentum from this Glasgow meeting so that the next two years of meetings gets us on that trajectory to have emissions really going down? Let me ask you about something that the British uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said over the weekend. He said, I, and I believe I'm quoting him accurately, that the agreements coming out of the uh, Glasgow uh, conference was the death knell for the coal industry. An overstatement? I would say that's a bit of an overstatement. I mean, you know, it depends where. You know, you have this sort of um, really landmark agreement with the country of South Africa to have uh, the United States and Germany and the UK and France help uh, with, a, with funding that would help the bankrupt utility of South Africa turn away from coal in a very substantial way and uh, move to renewables. And also some of that money is going to be used to ameliorate the loss of employment and revenue for the high number of people who work in the coal sector in South Africa. So that was a great outcome. But we don't have the same kind of commitment uh, to s reverse the use of coal uh, in places like India and even in China. And we need that um, to really be able to make progress. And so um, I think it's an exaggeration. Even, so, even the deal with South Africa, which is really a model landmark deal, uh, it's remained unclear whether the South Africa was going to continue to export coal or not, even though they themselves are going to use less uh, inside their own country. So we really still have a lot of work to do on coal uh, diplomatically. And uh, and I, I would disagree that, um, you know, maybe in the United States where we have so many different alternatives to use than coal, uh, we'll make good progress and certainly uh, in parts of Europe, but uh, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Amy Jaffe, Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at Tufts University. A little bit later on, California businesses 
trying to recover from the pandemic, but it hasn't been easy. We'll talk with D.D. Myers, former White House press secretary and head of uh, Governor Newsom's Office of Business and Economic Development. And by the way, how will Republicans run Congress if they control or gain control back after the 2022 midterms? And will there be like another impeachment attempt? Right now, though, rumors of devil worshiping swirling around social media, the Internet, is uh, being the cause of the Astroworld disaster at the Travis Scott concert in Houston. Ten people killed in that crush during the crowd. Also, rumors Scott would pay for people's therapy. What's fueling all of this? Ali Breland, a reporter at Mother Jones, covering Internet disinformation. And Jessica Lucas, reporter for Input Magazine, focusing on social media, both with us. Uh, Ali, let's start with you. How did this become such a magnet for some of this conspiracy stuff? I mean, are there actually people who think the stage positioning means something satanic or have people caught on that hey if i post a a wild video on tiktok playing internet sleuth uh i end up getting a bunch of likes yeah i think it's a little bit of both uh thanks for having me on by the way but yeah i think it's a little bit of both like there there are people who seem to glom onto this from my own sort of research and poking around tiktok um that just kind of post weird conspiracy theories and are just like asking the questions quote unquote uh but don't seem to be like seriously engaged but then there are sort of movements um the christian right for example is one where like i did see very sincere videos of like pastors and congregations like talking about this kind of thing and and you can sort of doubt their own credibility but like or doubt their own sincerity but like it certainly seems to pick up within their audiences um and and so like yeah, there there are sort of disingenuous people in this space, but there are a lot of people who sincerely do believe that this is a big thing. And it kind of speaks to how the lingua franca of processing like major traumatic events in the news right now is to just come up with wild conspiracy theories to sort of rationalize and contextualize things that are very hard to grasp or process. Jessica, were you able to figure out how this particular rumor misinformation about the whole Travis Scott thing being devil worshiping. Uh, Is it easy to figure out how it actually began? It's not easy to trace how it began. What we can see is that a lot of comments um, talking about devil worship started popping up in victim and survivor testimonials of Astroworld. So people were sharing their experiences of being in the crowd and uh, I guess their viewers were suggesting that all of this came down to some sort of satanic ritual. So that seems to be where it originated. But I'm sure Ali could tell you more about how it evolved. Yeah, Ali, to that point and one you were making before, I mean, does it kind of fuel itself that there's there's so much news and it's so much bad news out there that if you see conspiracy somewhere, then you can start to see it everywhere? Yeah, people's lives are really hard. Um the pandemic sort of exacerbated that there's a lot of economic precarity um it's just like a very difficult time and there can be spikes in conspiracy theories when that happened too and not to be like overly you know techno deterministic or blame technology platforms on it but like tiktok's algorithm and like sort of pinging around these conspiracy theories booms it out there's a lot of people that have to be susceptible to this kind of thing but maybe they wouldn't have seen this otherwise or thought about it that deeply but they're ripping through tiktok and then this pops up or they're on twitter and uh their algorithm shows them these kinds of things so that kind of explains how it it moved on but yeah i mean like i said earlier conspiracy theories have been used to explain things like 9-11 and things like that but i think right now we're at this weird point where every time something big happens it's like someone's controlling and pulling the strings whether it's the illuminati doing 5g bill gates (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> with coronavirus, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Our microchips. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Jessica, is, is uh, and of course, I don't, I don't mean to portray social media as being monolithic, but uh, is there any evidence that they're doing anything, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the TikToks, to try to, to uh, at least put a cap on some of this stuff? I think it's spreading pretty freely at the moment. Um, I, I haven't seen any evidence to see TikTok or other social media platforms trying to dampen it down. I think a lot of noise is coming from the media where we're sort of calling out that this is happening and saying it needs to be dealt with. And and Jessica, when it comes to the algorithms, are we as the audience starting to wise up to it at least a little bit because it used to be kind of funny right you'd watch a dog video and then another one would come and then your page is full of dog videos but to the discussion we're having now i mean you can watch a few of these and then pretty soon all your stuff is is conspiracy stuff yeah and i think strangely some people have been using that to their advantage you see a lot of testimonials online of people saying they've almost become addicted to astroworld content and have this hunger to find out more so they know the more they swipe, the deeper they'll go down this rabbit hole. All right. That's uh, Jessica Lucas, reporter at Input Magazine, and then Ollie Breland, a reporter at Mother Jones. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. California, big economy. If the state was its own country, we'd be the fifth largest economy in the world. But we are not without our problems. Unemployment remains stubbornly high compared to the national average since the pandemic started. Businesses often complain too many taxes and regulations, and then some even leave the state. So what does the future look like as California businesses recover from the pandemic and is help on the way from Washington, D.C. in the form of that infrastructure bill that was just signed into law by President Biden? With us again is D.D. Myers, senior advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom, director of California Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. She also is the former White House press secretary under President Clinton. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. So uh, the president, as I said, has now signed this giant $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Uh, What do we get out of this in California? Well, that that will take some time to figure out exactly what the details are. But in broad strokes, we'll get investments in the kind of infrastructure that will help our economy grow over the long term. Roads, bridges, um, uh, ports, uh, that that will certainly be helpful. uh, uh, Broadband for all, things like that. So we're really excited about the opportunity, excited to work with our partners in the federal government uh, to find the right investments and to, you know, to make sure that our economy remains the most competitive economy over the long term. Yeah, is long term one of the key words there? Because it's going to take a while for any of this to really get started. Yeah, it's really over a decade, but that's what infrastructure takes and that we need to be thinking and looking ahead. Uh, and this bill allows us and this spending allows us to do that. So look, we've under as a nation, we've underinvested in infrastructure for too long. Uh, This is a huge step forward for the country and for the state to be able to provide that opportunity. And by the way, it's not just infrastructure that will help grow the economy and create jobs through businesses. It will the actual building will create good, high paying jobs for Californians for for the next decade. And so it's a win, win, win uh, for the state and for the country. Yeah, as I'm sure you know, there's that old uh, saying that all politics is local, right? So there are people, I'm sure, who are listening who are going to go, yeah, it's all well and good, all these trillions of dollars pouring into different places. But is that pothole down the street going to get fixed? Well, you know, some, some, yeah, eventually, hopefully, um, a lot of those are those kinds of issues. Some of those local potholes are taken care of by local jurisdictions, but this will provide additional funds, both in the short and in the long term, uh, 
that I get, again, th this kind of investment is absolutely essential to long-term economic growth, to the health and competitiveness of the entire country. Sometimes we look around the world and we see airports, bridges, ports um, that, that just have had more investment from their federal governments, from their national governments. And it's, it's really time that this country uh, took that step, made those that decision to, to really be competitive in the future. So uh, again, it will be both short and long-term. For example, um, you know, the state of California, we've had a good, good couple of budget years here, uh, despite the pandemic, thanks to our innovation economy and to the, the kinds that we've seen just this year alone, 100 IPOs, right? These giant uh, investments in new businesses that, do pr that produce great revenue for California and allow us to make more immediate investments, which we did last year and everything from small business uh, to housing, to infrastructure, to dealing with homelessness and other problems like that. So you'll have both the local and state governments, but also the federal governments working together um, to try to move the country forward at this, uh, at, this, at this moment. We have this kind of once in a generation opportunity uh, to invest both now and over the future in the long-term success and health of our country. So it's an exciting time. Where are we right now in this state in terms of recovering the jobs lost during the pandemic? And can we compare that to, you know, those other states, the Texases and the Floridas that are always trying to, to lure our people away? <laughs> well, we can. And we're always happy when we get into the specifics about California versus Texas. First of all, we're coming back. Uh, as you guys know, uh, Governor Newsom made it a priority to keep California safe. And as you know, we have among the lowest infection, transmission, hospitalization, and death rates in the country, and among the highest vaccine rates. We still need more people to get vaccinated as we head into winter and a potential uh, spike, which we hope we'll be able to mitigate. But everyone needs to protect themselves, their families, and their communities by getting that shot because it's working. California is coming back over. The eight-month period from January through September, when the last data is available, California added 812,000 jobs, more than any other state in the nation. Texas was a distant second, uh, and it had the highest growth rate in jobs, 5.1%, and created almost 40% of the nation's new jobs. So we're outpacing not only the, the, the country's growth, but also some of these other states that like to talk a big game. Um, you know, in that same period from January through September, our unemployment rate fell. Uh, we're the 10th biggest uh, decline in, in the nation. Uh, and we saw, we've seen, we went from having about a third of our post of our pandemic job losses replaced to more than two thirds. And so moving in the right direction, uh, unemployment is still too high. We still have more work to do. But again, California is, is adding jobs more quickly than any place else in the country. You were mentioning in the last segment about this is a sort of once in a generational thing, uh, talking about the uh, the infrastructure bill that the president just signed. And I'm thinking, you know, I guess one of the last big ones would have been way back in the Eisenhower administration and what people saw out of that was the uh, interstate highway system. So it was, there was real concrete, literally, proof of of what was going on. What will, in your view, be the equivalent of that coming out of this bill, do you think? Well, we'll see. But I think one of the big things will be investment in broadband, right? Because that is kind of the interstate highway system of the of the next phase of our of our shared history, uh, we learned during the pandemic that uh, not how, how valuable it was not only for us to stay connected to our friends and our kids to stay connected to school, but businesses that had virtual storefronts just fared better. Uh, and we're seeing how people have changed their habits. Consumer habits have changed. People have moved even more of their of their shopping and communicating, and and businesses 
online. And so we need to invest in that broadband, uh, you know, to make sure that people have the opportunities and that we have one more avenue for, or I mean, a virtual avenue for businesses to thrive and succeed. So that's a really exciting component of this, but also the brick and mortar kinds of investments in roads and highways and airports and ports that have been uh, underinvested for, for way too long. And so I think we'll see over the years how um, the world changes and how we grow. But I do think that, that that's a very exciting component of this new bill. As the small businesses still try to recover, what has been offered to them and what can they still access and you know we've done plenty of stories all these different city programs and state programs and and there's always a a pot of money but it doesn't seem like it's always a going out quick enough or b that people know how to get their hands on it right well over the last year the state of california uh provided four billion dollars in small business grants uh not loans but grants and uh we we moved those very quickly they were for small businesses with revenue under two and a half million dollars we wanted to get to the people that were most affected and in the industries and in the regions in California, too, that had been most severely impacted. So that program has mostly been granted, but we did move quickly for that reason to make sure we got money into people's hands and money back into the into the economy and also kept people in their jobs. And so uh, that was a successful. Certainly, the governor provided also um, the, the Golden State stimulus, which was, a, you know, $600 or between six dollars and $1,200 directly into families' hands to keep, again, to support whatever needs they had. We still have several ongoing programs um, for particularly for small businesses, for the smallest businesses. We have a micro uh, business grant program that's rolling out now the, uh, the, that, that will become available in January. And you can go uh, anytime to be a business.ca.gov to look at what some of the opportunities are provided by the state. Uh, the governor also provided 600 uh, billion million dollars in, in tax re- credits for small businesses when we when we conformed with the PPP, the pay te- Paycheck Protection Program of the federal government. So that was a huge tax break for businesses, which they're still, I think, benefiting from. And then one of our signature programs in the state is something called our CalCompete's Tax Credit Program. Uh, and we also have a grant program, but the CalCompete's Tax Credit Program provides tax credits for companies that agreed to uh, create a specific number of high quality, high paying jobs in California and also invest additional resources to grow their facilities or expand their operations. We just announced uh, 10 days ago, $150 million in additional tax credits for that program. And we're rolling out the, uh, the, the rules for the grant program, which won't be credits, but again, grants for businesses that don't qualify for tax credits because they're new or they reinvest their profits in research and development. And so um, that can also, you can also find information about that on on our website, business.ca.gov. Is there any sense of a clock ticking? Uh, I mean, I know, for example, the infrastructure bill is being touted as bipartisan in nature, but I also know that during the Trump administration, it wasn't an administration that was particularly friendly to the state of California. Is there any concern that if Congress reverts to Republican dominance in 2022 or the White House uh, to Republicans back in uh, 2024, that uh, some of this money that's expected might somehow magically, and I'm using that in quotes, dry up? Well, let's hope not. Uh, you know, California is a is, is, is the biggest state. We have the biggest economy. We drive so much of uh, uh, economic benefit for the entire country that that would be a little cutting off uh, the nose to spite the face. But we did see that in the previous administration. For example, um, the SALT, the state, the deductibility of state and local taxes for Californians that affects a lot of middle class uh, people. Uh, was eliminated because uh, 
uh, they, you know, the, the previous administration wanted to punish quote unquote blue states and they were fairly straightforward about that. So we'll see if that gets restored in the in the reconciliation bill, as we're calling it. But uh, that is an example of of, uh, you know, I think a, a really counterproductive playing politics with economics at a time when we really need to get the country back on its feet. So let's hope not. Uh, and let's, you know, one of the things that's been great about the last year is that we've had a partner in the federal government that's really helped us invest in California. And in fact, you know, just about two weeks ago, we announced a partnership with um, the Federal Department of Transportation and our State Department to invest, uh, pro provide five, um, $500 million in, I'm sorry, $5 billion in uh in more infrastructure spending, particularly around goods movement, which we're seeing how critical the goods movement sector is and how much we as a nation need to invest. We in California want to lead the way uh, and create new investments and, and really build out our infrastructure to both drive the economy, but keep the goods moving that, that, that are so important to California families and, and businesses. So, Well, for those yeah. places that, that still need workers and can't figure out where they are, I mean, where are they? For, for those who haven't been in work for a while, how are they still hanging on without paychecks? Or all these places, and we need truck drivers, and, you know, DMV is going to offer more classes for the licenses, but if you can't get them in the door to even want to be a truck driver, what do we do? Well, I mean, for that specific one, there are a lot of drivers who have finished uh, training through schools and other other uh, avenues, and, and they're waiting to get their licenses, which we're going to accelerate. We're going to double the number of commercial licenses we're able to provide by, you know, increasing gradually through January, uh, which will be important. Um, look, you know, people, it's, it's a great question. And I don't think that there's a simple answer to it. As we come out of the pandemic, um, there is a, there's a lot of help wanted signs. And, uh, you know, some people are still nervous about going back to work since the pandemic is still out there and not everyone's vaccinated. And they're, you know, they've, they've been able to save some money over the pandemic since they, uh, people weren't going out or spending money in the same ways. And so um, that's one part of it. Other people are looking at their lives and saying, I, I want a better job. I want a different kind of job. And so there's a lot of transition and we'll see where it all shakes out. But, um, you know, we are seeing that we're adding jobs back, particularly in those hardest hit sectors like travel and tourism and entertainment. Uh, and so we're encouraged. It's not going to be smooth. It's going to be a little choppy. I think that's one of the things that we've seen, but we're optimistic that as we add about 100,000 jobs a month in this state, um, that we'll be able to get things back up and fully staffed over the coming months and, and, and see us return to something much more like what we call normal. D.D. Myers, Senior Advisor to Governor Newsom, Director of California's Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. D.D., thanks for coming back on the show. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Steve Bannon, former advisor to former President Trump, has turned himself into the feds on contempt charges after defying his subpoena from the January 6th commission, appeared in court this afternoon in Washington, D.C., came out promising to fight. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden. Well, he's the first to face contempt charges connected to the January 6th commission. But will he be the last? With us is Renato Mariotti, attorney, former federal prosecutor and host of the On Topic broadcast podcast. He just wrote an opinion piece in Political about how difficult it is to pursue these types of charges. So welcome back to the show. And why is it so difficult? Wow. Well, for a, a number of reasons, but one of which is that, first of all, there are valid reasons not to respond to a congressional subpoena. 
And usually the people who are responding to congressional subpoenas have attorneys involved in negotiations that make it quite messy for prosecutors to claim that they are committing a crime by failing to respond in the manner that Congress would like. That's the high, the 10,000 foot view. Okay. And it's rare for these actually to amount to anything, right? And then it's rare for them even to happen when, when Congress tries to do this to people. Exactly. I mean, you said that this is the first uh, person to face these charges related to the January 6th commission, which are committee, which is true. It's also the first person to uh, face uh, a criminal referral since 1982. And if he's convicted, it would be the first conviction since 1977. Uh, these cases are just difficult to bring. So does that mean that Congress really has no teeth uh, when it comes to enforcing things like subpoenas, that if somebody has enough you know, money to lawyer up, and obviously Steve Bannon does, uh, that it's a kind of meaningless thing for the most part? Um, it, it, it Meaningless, I don't know about that, but it's definitely, it can be difficult to obtain enforcement if the person doesn't care about their reputation or feels their reputation is enhanced by thumbing their nose at Congress, and if they have the resources and wherewithal to hire attorneys who will help them thwart uh, what Congress would like to do. I mean, I, I unfortunately, I think a lot of people have this expectation that our legal system works in the way it does in like a law and order episode where everything gets wrapped up in 47 <laughs> minutes and it's very clean. Uh, that's not how it is in real life. And the fact of the matter is that in a variety of different contexts, uh, it is very possible to gum up the works. You mean, in, you mean in real life, there isn't like really cool theme music? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the lawyers don't look like they do in Law and Order. There's no theme music. Nothing no the one same. confesses on the witness stand. None of that happens. Man. Um, <laughs> all of this talk that this was going to send a huge message to everybody else, right, by, by them going after Ben, was that overblown? Or do we have, like, different groups here? There are some that were maybe more on the outside, like Steve Bannon, and then there were those who were right there, like the Mark Meadows, and, and we can kind of draw those lines? You know, it's interesting. Uh, actually, those people have less to fear, okay? The Mark Meadows of the world actually have legitimate executive privilege concerns uh, much more than so than Bannon. Um, so it's easier for them to make those arguments and they have more of a leg to stand on. I, I would say that they are the, the, that 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 uh, sentiment is definitely overblown. I mean, it, it, I don't want to say there's nothing to it. Certainly when somebody's prosecuted for uh, uh, contempt of Congress, it definitely is going to raise eyebrows. The others are going to be, you know, paying attention to that issue, looking at that issue. But somebody like Mark Meadows, he's got a sophisticated counsel, and their strategy over the weekend hasn't changed. In fact, uh, his counsel went and wrote a, a, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post decrying what the Justice Department is doing. He's out floating potential you know, negotiation points and compromises just to make himself sound reasonable. And of course, he's pursued an approach where he's negotiated with them, and he's tried to sound conciliatory. But in the end, Meadows is providing nothing. And I don't think Meadows is seriously concerned about prosecution. You know, some people were asking, I know this morning, well, how come they don't just uh, haul Bannon into jail? How come they don't? Well, this is the United States of America. So we don't just throw people in jail here. We actually have a Bill of Rights that people have to get indicted and convicted. Now, yes, there is something called inherent contempt, uh, inherent authority that Congress has to hold people in contempt. 
that has not been enforced in well over 100 years, I think 150, something like that, a long time ago. And, you know, part of that is because Congress is not made to be a police force. It is, there are, there's something called the Capitol Police and they're charged, as we know, with protecting our Capitol. But, you know, they, they're not, they don't have prisons. They're not set up to do that. That's not what Congress does. Uh, and so it's, it's really a sort of an antiquated notion. But generally in this country, uh, people aren't just thrown in prison when they don't comply with subpoenas. Renato Mariotti, attorney, former federal prosecutor, host of the On Topic podcast. You know how he was talking about how it's not real life isn't like the, you know, the TV shows mm, with mm-hmm. music. and all. I always thought what would be a really good invention is, you know, how like you have a conversation with somebody and you really want it to end, but it's not. Yeah. So you market uh, what amounts to a portable credit thing. Start so, rolling. Yeah. So if you want to end the conversation, you put it on the table and you roll credits. Take Done. a band with you like the Oscars. Just start playing everybody <laughs> off. You know, goodbye. President Biden. Biden, as we mentioned, uh, just signed the big infrastructure bill. It took a lot of work to get it out of Congress and onto his desk. Next up is the $1.75 trillion social spending bill. Now, if the president is finding it difficult now to advance his agenda through a Democratic-controlled Congress, what's going to happen if the House and Senate flip to the Republicans after the 2022 midterms? Which is looking more and more likely. What will be in store for the president? What happens to the January 6th commission with us is Tim Rosales, Republican strategist, president and CEO of the Rosales Johnson Agency. Tim, thanks for being here. So how much do you think the clock is really ticking? for some of these things that the uh, Dems are working on right now? Well, I think they're, de- they're definitely on the clock. And whether or not they you know, hit it before the American people uh, reach their uh, level of intolerance and, 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 and want to uh, uh, you know, hold them accountable for it, uh, we may have already hit that level uh, on that. And so I think that they really are feeling the pressure and we're seeing it uh, with uh, with what's happening in Washington D.C. right now, and also what we're seeing with the many members of Congress, when like uh, you know Kristen Cinema and others, uh, who really are kind of bucking against uh, what is uh, happening uh, in D.C. amongst our party leadership and kind of going their own way. So, have we now entered this age where every few years, you know, one party who in power tries to impeach the other party in power, and it goes back and forth like that? It sure seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, And certainly, we, you know, we see it at the national level where, you know, you had, uh, you know, President Trump, uh, four years of of that. And, and, you know, and the Democrats were, uh, you know, after after him, like nothing else I've ever seen, you know, before. I don't think like any of us have seen before. Certainly some of it is, you know, was was earned, um, you know, by him. But then you you have, you know, the uh, with the Biden administration, you know, certainly uh, they have, have made a few missteps, uh, you know, as well, and they're getting some well-deserved criticism. Um, but, uh, you know, Congress, uh, you know, is supposed to be the, the voice and representative of the people, especially the House of Representatives. Uh, and, you know, as you have these kind of peaks and troughs in, in, uh, in public opinion, uh, which, which happen over, you know, every few years uh, and, and, and corrections uh, that occur, uh, you see the, the uh, change in, in leadership and power in, in Congress, you know, move. Uh, and it's not unusual. And certainly it's, uh, you know, one of the things that makes, you know, the American system great is that you've got these, you know, these parties that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, take control for, you know, a couple of years. And, and, and the American people, one thing that they show, the electorate shows, is that they do not like complete control of the government with, by one party. 
and they tend to self-correct. Uh, whether that's Democrats or Republicans, they seem to be agnostic about which party it is. They just don't like complete control of one party or the other uh, at every level of government. Are we getting too polarized, though, to actually get things done in any good clip? Because we've had you know, some Republicans vote for this infrastructure bill, and then they get shamed by the other Republicans. But people want this stuff. It's broadly supportive when you ask them about it. So why not vote for it so you can actually say, hey, all of us got together finally and passed something? Uh, you know, it's a good point. But if you get, I mean, if you go back, you know, to the to the American founding, and everybody can kind of, you know, dust off their, you know, their 10th grade US history books, you know, you can look at the fact that this country was designed and the way that our government was designed was for, you know, legislation to be difficult uh, for these things to be debated, uh, and for there to be a healthy amount of discourse. So, um, you know, certainly, you've seen this throughout history, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, present day, or you, you can, you can go back, you know, fights, uh, you know, fights in the in the House and the Senate and, and, and at the levels of the presidency, you know, going back to this nation's inception. Um, so, you know, it is, uh, you know, it is part of our American system. I think it is healthy to some, to some degree, but certainly, um, you know, one thing is that uh, it's designed to do is, is have some type of compromise so people can come together and, and, and uh, you know, put forth solutions that, uh, you know, the, that most of the American uh, people and electorate can get behind. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was designed for healthy debate, but healthy debate is different from a zero-sum game, right? I mean, where where nobody ends up doing anything. And it does seem as if there's this contradiction that the public is constantly berating, and, and perhaps rightly so, Congress for not doing anything. Yet, to your point, uh, they seem to always want to have, you know, they don't want one party in control. But it does tend to be that when you have one party in control, for better or worse, you do get more things done. Well, it's true. Uh, you do get more things done uh, that that party and that that you know that particular ideology or party wants to get done, uh, and uh, you know that may be uh, supported by you know some of the country, um, you know. But you know this again, going back to <laughs> going back to the uh, uh, you know going back to history, you know this this nation and, and at the federal level was designed so that you don't have majority rule, that the minority does have a say so, and you cannot get completely you know, overrun, uh, you know, by a, uh, you know, by a majority. Uh, and so, you know, that, that protection of the minority protection of, um, you know, being able to, to, uh, to have, um, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, speed bumps along the way right. uh, is important. But if you want to go way, way back since we are <laughs> to the, yeah, to the founding, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, they, they really didn't have the founding fathers didn't even have political parties in mind. I mean, that kind of evolved a little bit later on. Uh, so, yes, the, there was a an accommodation for a minority point of view. But uh, the whole idea of having one party versus another party and the name of the game was to virtually destroy whatever the other party wants wasn't the game plan. Well, it wasn't the game plan, but we did see it, you know, early on, you know, with you know folks like uh, Hamilton and yeah. Jefferson and and Adams and, and you know and those folks. But but to your point, I mean, really, uh, with uh, where we are in kind of you know kind of American politics today, and you've got uh, you know everyone is on the you know twenty four hour news cycle. Uh, you know, anyone can become an influencer, a pundit, have their voice you know heard. Um, you know, and can, whether they're on the right or the left can, you know, talk about ideas and thoughts uh, and, 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 and influence, you know, debate. It is a unique time and we haven't never seen anything like this where there is so much access 
so much uh, so much discourse out there, uh, you know, from from both sides. And I think that the one challenge is is being able to weave and navigate through through all of it, um, because you know, at some point, it does get to be you know noise and people. You know, the question for people like me who, you know, we run political campaigns, you know, for, for a living uh, and, uh, you know, is, okay, when do people actually start turning off, you know, really turning off uh, and, and stop listening? Uh, and, you know, that's a dangerous point because that means that, you know, people are becoming you know, apathetic and, and certainly we want people to be involved and, and, and interested and care about uh, what it is that, uh, you know, is going on at the various levels of government. But, but you know, it, it, we do get to that dangerous point where people say, no, I'm just I'm, I'm just completely unplugging. Tim Rosales, Republican strategist, president, CEO of the Rosales Johnson Agency. Tim, thanks. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.